Welcome to Through the Keyhole, episode number 10. I'm your host, Jeremy Key. On this episode, I speak with a woman who on Twitter goes by the handle of Going Godward. We discuss, amongst other things, education in America, bunnies, and why they resemble hobbits, discovering our ideal selves in less-than-ideal times, and the silver linings of societal collapse. Perhaps it's because we're both Southerners, but this was very much a delight from start to finish, and we outlined, by my estimation, at least four additional shows that we're excited to eventually record. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever you found the show. You can also like and subscribe on YouTube, something I never thought I would say in any serious way. Join the conversation on Twitter at the keyhole, spelled K-E-E. Or you can start a conversation of your own by emailing me at throughthekeyhole at gmail.com. This is my interview with Going Godward. Enjoy the show. All right. So after a bit of a hiatus, Through the Keyhole is back. Uh, it is it is whatever month it is. I think it's March and we're happy to be back. I have a guest today, this afternoon. Uh, she, we met on Twitter, and um, we we've had some fun interactions. You might know her as Going Godward. I know her as Gigi, um, and so I'm going to call her that on the episode. Gigi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we were able to do this. We had some technical issues to get started, but uh, yes, that seems I to live be with technical issues. I always have a technical issue. I do too. I do too. Like I was telling you before the show, I talk to a dozen clients on Zoom every week and not an issue. And then, you know, when I have a podcast guest, it's just like, what can go wrong? It's going to go wrong. Um, So, you know, the way I like to do these shows is I like to just talk to my guests for a while, get to know them, uh, who they are, what their thing is about. And the best way to do that is probably just to ask you uh, to tell us a little bit about yourself. So, who are you? What, what's your thing? So I am um, a social worker professionally. That's what my professional role is. Um, I work in a school setting. I work as a school counselor, social work support in a Title I school in um, the city I live. Mm-hmm. So I've been involved in all sorts of education, private tutoring, um, in the public school. I have done like substitute teaching kind of thing before I got more into the social work role. Um, But now I've been doing social work for either um, federally funded pre-K programs or in the public school setting. So that's kind of professionally what I do. Um, Personally, I just read a lot. Um, And I have two teenage boys and I'm about to get some cats. Nice. And my interests are like, you know, theology, philosophy, psychology, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. What, um, so I don't know, I don't know if it's like this for social workers, but, you know, I'm a therapist, I'm a counselor, whatever you want to call me. And there seems to be something of a kind of a professional rivalry, Uh, at least in Texas, there's a bit of a professional rivalry between social workers and therapists. because it seems like social workers get a lot of jobs that therapists want, but therapists can't get a lot of jobs that social workers want. It's just kind of a weird thing. So why social work? What, what draws you to that? 
Um, how did you how did you land on that? So for me, and I and I know I know this sounds probably like I don't know I don't want to like spiritualize the response, but I mean for me when I when I got into social work, all I could think about was I had this this theme of redemption in my mind, hmm. and I felt like social work offered an opportunity to be part of a redemptive process in people's lives. Yeah. Um, because social work really encompasses, you know, the therapeutic side, the mm-hmm. counseling side, but also like a resource connection side. And it's kind of this, you're developing a whole plan for someone's life. You're not just focusing on the counseling and the therapeutic side of, of healing, you know, psychological, mm-hmm. emotional, spiritual healing. You're also connecting them physically to things that will improve their life. So while I might be walking a family through, um, you know, both parents maybe have job loss or or one parent, if it's a single parent home has job loss and they need income and they need um, housing or they need transportation um, and just the, the, the emotional toil that that that, that takes um, on them. I'm also, I'm working through that piece, but I'm also connecting them with housing and transportation and we're working with you know, career services to get plugged into a job. So it's just kind of this whole approach to, um, to redemption, yeah. to taking what's broken and fixing it. That's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting to hear you say that because in my, in my current job, I work uh, in a community mental health setting. And even though I'm a counselor, like by trade, that's what my education's in. My licensure is counseling. I'm technically a caseworker. Like that's mm-hmm. what I was hired to do. And so mm-hmm. uh the resource, uh the resource finding and connection and all that. And I don't know, I don't know what your experience has been in that line of work, but my experience has been eye-opening. Like you talk about mm-hmm. the redemptive side of things mm-hmm. and, and that kind of being your your driver. Mm-hmm. I get that because mm-hmm. You know, like I'm a I'm a middle class white guy. I've come from just kind of that life that you would probably expect. Mm-hmm. Most of my clients are low income, African American, right. um, functionally homeless, if not completely homeless. Right. All of them have trauma in their backgrounds, and it's just mm-hmm. it's opened my eyes. And I'm 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 wondering what impact your work has had, maybe on you on a personal level, a spiritual level, a political level, because, you know, Mm -hmm. I've certainly been impacted in all those ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Spiritually, I think it's just, and I'm sure you experience the same thing. It's just kind of a reinforcement that we do live in a broken world. Yeah. We live in a broken world. And having that worldview, I think has really helped me to not be so bogged down and, and weighted down by the problems that I see. Mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. um just knowing that we live in a broken world and you know as a christian knowing that that christ um is redeeming this world he will redeem this world and just having that hope um is really i guess spiritually how i'm affected yeah just a reminder of the brokenness and a reminder of the redemption and um what else do you say mentally? Uh, yeah, mentally, personally, politically. Oh, per- yeah, um, I think, well, I will say being in, in the field as in the in 
the amount of time I've been in it and, and the capacity that I've worked and you know where I've worked, it's really helped me to refine where my strengths are, where I want to focus my attention and just kind of where I want to go professionally, you know, for the next 20, 25 years. Yeah. Because I'm 40. So I want to, you know, I want to work for at least. You volunteered that. I want it known. I did not ask you volunteered I'm, Listen, I'm 40 and proud. I'm like, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, think, I think one thing I've said this before, I'm going to chase a rabbit, go down a rabbit trail. Mm-hmm. I think women who, in my experience, kind of go through this crisis, this crisis maybe I'll go through it. I don't know, but it has a lot to do with like feeling okay about what you've done so far and kind mm-hmm. of a plan for where you're going. So I feel excited about being 40 and about the next 25 ish years of, of getting to work professionally. And yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, my point is <laughs> it's really helped me being in the field. I've gotten to refine my interests. My str- I, I kind of know what my strengths are now. Um, I've built a network of people and I can kind of move forward with my vision um, professionally. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Well no, it, it, it answers and it opens up a new question, which is uh, what is your vision professionally? You, you mentioned uh, being excited about the next 20 or 25 years of working. What do you see for yourself in that period of time to the extent that you can forecast a decade or two decades or two and a half decades. Right. It's looking kind of grim right now. So tentatively, these are my plans. If okay. you know, tentatively. If, if the Lord don't come in the creek, don't rise. Like, these yeah. are my plans. Um, you know, so you know, from knowing me on Twitter, I'm a huge um education advocate. Mm-hmm. And I just see a massive need for choice for low-income populations, Hmm. especially in my city. I I mean, I'm speaking from my city and also where I come from in Southern Appalachia. Um, I don't live in Southern Appalachia anymore, but so I miss it. I, I see so many students who do not have their parents. They don't really know what their options are. They don't know that they have a choice. They don't have to be, you know, they just don't know what their, what their education options are. Right. And then if they do discover what they are, they don't have, they can't afford them. Um, so just looking at opportunities to provide a really high education choice for low-income families, that is my number one goal. So if that involves, you know, becoming an advocate for redistricting, like redistricting the lines so that families have more opportunities to um, go to schools that are higher performing, um, mm-hmm. to promote school choice, to give more private and charter school options, um, all those things. And then I'm also, so, so that for low, all of low income families, and then uh, working on a transitional refugee school program. I, I live in a city that has the highest number of refugees per capita than oh. any other city in the country. And the school system, we have roughly 6% of our students are all refugee. They were all born in a different country and they speak a different language. I think we have 30 different language repre- languages represented in our school system. Jeez. 30. It's a Good lot. Gracious. Um, so we are in desperate need of something that serves that population of students. So I'm presently working on a two-year transition school slash program. I'm not sure how it's going to be funded or what it's going to be like 
labeled as. Yeah. Um, where students will come there for up to two years to do English and language um, learning, English language learning, and also like an assimilation piece. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a recent article written by, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the, of the girl who did it. Um, she writes for USA Today. But anyway, she did an, an article on my city mm -hmm. and the students came out and said, the hardest piece for us was like going and sitting in a classroom and not knowing English. So like trying to learn English, English alongside, you know, doing chemistry work. It was, right. it was impossible. Like it, it was so, they could not, they couldn't do it. Yeah. And their dropout rates were high. Um, so there's just a huge need for something like that in my city. And that's something I've been working on for a couple of years. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What um when you were when you were in grade school, college, whatever time frame you want to choose, what kind of student were you? Were you were you like passionate about the level of uh level of education you were receiving? Were you just like, I'm gonna read the cliff notes and get by on whatever grade I can? Like, what were you like? Yeah. So in grade school, like elementary, middle school, I was like the straight A student, you know, wanted to perform. And even in high school, I was a good student, you know, mm. mostly A's, a few B's, that kind of thing. Um, but I was involved in so many things in high school. I just didn't, I don't say school wasn't a priority, but I did what I, I did what I needed to do to make, you know, good grades, like good enough grades, A's and maybe I, like I made B's and you know, like trigonometry and stuff like mm. that. Um, it was important. I was, I'm first born only girl mm. of three children. So I'm a, a little bit of that compliant rule follower, you know, kind of thing when it comes to, to that. Um, so I was, a, I was a good student and my high school, my, most of my school experience was really positive. Mm. I grew up in a really teeny tiny rural town. Um, I never thought about that I was getting a poor education. I felt like I was getting a pretty decent education. I felt like for the school system that I grew up in, in the, in the region I grew up in, we had a lot of opportunities to do really exciting things. We had an archeological dig when I was in middle school. Nice. Um, we did civil war reenactments. Um, we got to go to Kennedy Space Center for a, um, a field trip. That's awesome. And, I got some, I had some really great experiences. And then my high school class was very small. Mm. Um, I've mentioned before our valedictorian played the bagpipes and he like brought the bagpipes into lunch every day. And we sat there and listened to him play the bagpipes, That's you know, awesome. or the banjo. He played his banjo at our graduation, you know. So I had a really good experience, but I will say, I mean, that was 20 years ago sure. and things have changed so much since then. And I don't know that anybody is getting that kind of experience um, yeah. outside of private education now. Yeah. 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 I am. Um, so I'm, I'm also very passionate about, <clears throat> about education. I, I, my interests tend to be more in higher education, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, like I was, when I was in grade school, I I was kind of like you, like I wasn't, I wasn't a bad student. I, I could have been a much better student. I guess that's where right. you and I kind of differ. Like I, if I got a B, like, eh, I could have done better, but at the same time, it keeps my teachers, my parents and my coaches off of me. So it's good enough. Right. Um, 
you know, my parents didn't really ever push studying as long as I made the grade. But then I got to college and suddenly that didn't work. And I actually had to apply myself and it kind of it, it got kind of grim there for a while. But then I that was when I learned like, hey, I'm actually a good student. And mm-hmm. when you apply yourself like good things happen, who would have thought? Right. And so since then, yeah, education has been very important to me. And, um, you know, I, I, you just, you see the kind of direction that education is going, uh, particularly, you know, public education is going and it's just like, can you really even call this like, yeah, I guess it's education in the sense that you're learning, but is it, education in the sense that you're learning something valuable or helpful or that's going to expand you as a as a a human Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on what's going on just in general in the educational sphere in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, so my boys started to school in 2009 so they've been you know in school for the last decade and I started seeing a decline around 2011 Mm -hmm. and I don't, I mean, to me, that was like when, when things really started to, I could see like a serious decline. And it seemed to be around that time that teachers were being required to do a lot more monitoring. So like Mm. where kids are at this level of reading and they had to document all this stuff. And I remember going into teachers classrooms because then I was volunteering at the school. Mm -hmm. It was this, my kids went to this itty bitty rural school in Tennessee and I mean like teeny tiny school and I remember going in and and the teacher had like all these shelves of of notebooks and portfolios and stuff and she I mean you had to like monitor where this kid was in performance in this area and where they performed in that area and you had to Mm -hmm. keep track of all that and and now I'm in a public school and the amount of monitoring teachers have to do for students in terms of progress Mm -hmm is so there it's so time consuming it's such a time consuming task so they're not able to sit and and teach or or that kind of thing um so much of their time is spent monitoring it's like yeah and I feel like they don't they don't have the instruction opportunities that they used to because they're having to monitor the other thing and I was actually talking about this on Twitter the other day um behavior has gotten so out of control Mm -hmm. I mean so out of control that teachers either spend time monitoring or addressing behavioral needs right and there's just not a lot of time left to instruct and teach and like you said whatever's being taught is it something that's valuable yeah um and you know I've talked about some Twitter a lot I'm sure you feel the same way we want to see education moored in virtue mm-hmm. we want to see that there's a deeper meaning or purpose behind what we're doing what does it point us to where where does it lead us you know if we if we learn that two plus two is four which I know that's debatable now apparently you know if you learn two plus two is four like what does that tell us about reality yeah so you're wanting it to point you to objective reality you're wanting education to to show you what's what's really going on in in the universe yeah my dog whimpering I'm hoping she's gonna I'm going to send a little message to my son to make sure. <laughs> um, so, 
I mean, I don't know what, did you go to parochial school? Did you go to public school? What did you go so to? So I, grade school for me was all public. Uh, K through 12 was all public. Uh, my, my undergraduate, what, actually my undergraduate and my graduate school were both at uh, different um, Southern Baptist affiliated universities. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I went to, yeah, yeah. So I went to undergraduate. There's a small school in Belton, Texas, which is about, about an hour and a half North of Austin. It's called University okay. of Mary Harden Baylor. Um, okay. It is actually, people don't know this. Like I tell people, I went to U, uh, University of Mary Harden Baylor and they say, oh, I have a, you know, a, a nephew who goes to Baylor. It's like, no, I didn't No, not Baylor. Mary Harden Baylor. We actually right. we actually gave birth to Baylor. Baylor came okay, from right, our right, school. Right. Um, but yeah, so I I went there, uh, studied political science, um, double minored in history and economics. My mm-hmm. uh, my my mentor. I, I I was really fortunate to um, to start taking a few classes uh, taught by an adjunct professor who became my mentor. And the reason he became my mentor was because he was a, uh, he was a retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, who spent his entire career in military intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so he had, you know, not to, not to, not to push around um, my evangelical brothers and sisters, but he just had a very, different worldview than what you came to expect at this, you know, small Baptist college. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he was kind of the one who taught me like what it means to think critically and how to do that and how to really read. And, and Mm -hmm. one of our, one of our final exams, uh, the final exam for one of his classes was he gave us, um, uh, what was the name? He gave us all the publicly available intelligence for uh, there was a terrorist something Zarqawi, I think was his name. He oh, that was during like 2001 Zarqawi. I think we yeah. know who you're talking about. Yes. So he gave us all the publicly available intelligence mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. told us to basically come up with the conclusion on like where he was, what this guy was guilty of, how to find him, how to, oh, interesting. How to That's like interesting. bring him to justice. Yeah. And that was that was for a class in political science. And so like mm-hmm. that was always very interesting to me. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but like it was such a stark contrast because in grade school and I used to be embarrassed to admit this, but now it's just like, well, it is what it is um, in grade school. I never mastered the concept of like nouns, verbs, adjectives, like just it never stuck with me. It wasn't until. I got into college and really until I started writing and publishing that I really started learning the parts of grammar and what mm-hmm. everything was. And it was, you know, it's because like you said, like even back then, this would have been 2001 through five, you know, even back then it was, it was, we were, we were taught toward the test. We were taught towards the the SAT or the ACT or just, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we weren't, really instructed we were just kind of given what we were told we needed to know um so yeah so when I like I say when I got to college and I realized hey I'm actually like not a terrible student it uh 
it, it completely changed my opinions on the value of education. Because up to that point, it had just been, you know, bad experiences with Algebra 2 or, uh, you know, like reading The Great Gatsby and thinking that you're well-versed in high literature. And uh, <laughs> nothing against The Great Gatsby, but it's no, like... No, 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 I know what you're saying. It's like though. there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a long distance between that and War and yeah. Peace, which I, I hear right. is now canceled. Um, is it? Oh, I don't know. I can't keep track of everything they're canceling. Yeah, uh, I, I think I saw earlier this week that um, that some college somewhere uh, removed uh, Dostoevsky from their curriculum. And then I saw yesterday that uh, Netflix had a, a show about Tolstoy that was in production that they canceled that. And it's just like... As we speak, I literally have this sitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like uh the the Brothers Karamazov is on my is on my bookshelf as one of the next books I'm gonna read. And it's just it's like what are we doing? Um and the, you know, these are educational institutions that are canceling, you know, arguably the greatest writer in the past mm-hmm. five hundred years. Um and so yeah, it's it, it, the the thing I, se- I seem to ask a lot of my guests is simply just what is happening? Like, what, do, what, like you look around at the world, what do you think is happening? Um, I think it's just this complete, um, destroy, I think, I don't know. This is, this is such a hard question. It I'm is. Like, I have so, there are like so many things I think are going wrong. I think if I had to really say one thing, it's that the meta narrative of the West mm-hmm. has been completely dismantled hmm. or is close to being dismantled. And that meta narrative has been Christianity. That's kind of been the overarching um, principled idea, yeah. ideal of, of uh, the West. And that has been, I think it's beginning to disintegrate. Yeah. Um, so what will that be replaced with? And it seems as though it's being replaced with something that's um, not rooted in objective reality. It's yeah. something yeah. that is, you know, whatever someone's perceived um, reality is. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess my, I guess that's what I would say is just the, the dismantling of the meta narrative that has yeah. been part of the West for the last several hundred years. Few hundred years. <laughs> has been part of the West pretty much since, since the, the West, West was the West. born, like yeah. ever. Yeah. Yeah. Like what is the context of the West without, without, you know, Christianity. Church, without Christianity, right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't like to put it that way because it, because, you know, a lot of people hear that sort of thing and you're like, oh, so you just want a theocracy. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just talking about the general, like, um, how do you feel about Rod Dreher? I've read, um, I read Live Not By Lies mm-hmm. and I really liked his foreword of um, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern I Self. Read that. Yeah. Oh, it's excellent. I also have it in here. I, I'm, Okay, listen, I'm working on a project right now to get my, I think I'm, I am embarrassed to say how many books I have. It's, it's a, I have a problem. Um, it's, it's like, it's a problem. Um, and so I just have kind of stacks everywhere and I actually have, um, 
Truman's book right here. Um, so from those points, I really like his writing. I, yeah. I follow him on Twitter. I read a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think he's definitely prescient. Is that the word? Maybe? I think that's, I think that's an, I think that that is an apt way of describing Dreher. Uh, and the reason I ask is because the book you wrote before Live Not Lo- <clears throat> Hey, there's my dog. Was it the Benedict Option? Benedict Option. And, you know, the whole, the, the whole thing about St. Benedict is that, as Dreyer puts it, when, when Rome was collapsing and burning and taking, you know, all of what was then world civilization with it, mm-hmm. Benedict and, you know, his, his monk friends, they were the ones who did you know the yeoman's work of preserving right. what they could right so that so that when when things you know leveled out a bit something could come up from the ashes and mm-hmm. um and there doesn't seem like there we need more of that like i i don't i don't that's know really that's a really good thought it, it is um i and I think that's why I like Dreyer because he seems like that seems to be his thing. He's a big um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 76, I think, 75 or 76, Solzhenitsyn and some of his fellow dissidents, they wrote a book called From Under the Rubble. Mm-hmm. And it was all about how Russia could emerge once the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm-hmm. And so they provide all of these different ideas Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 go, no, go, 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 go. No, go. I, was, I was just gonna say there seems to be there seems to be this this pattern of people uh, who who are are of sound enough mind to recognize when things are going south and start preparing for a long winter, so that when so that when everything begins to thaw, we're not left saying like. Okay, so you know, how do we start a fire? We are we've already got the matches and the wood set aside. So what were you gonna say? Well, kind of the same thing. I do feel like there are people who are kind of doing that right now, who are saying, what can we preserve? What needs to be preserved spiritually, intellectually, um, so that when it does kind of collapse, I hate using that word, and I'm not a doomer. I'm not, I'm not, I'm like the, you know, and I'm, I'm not like an eternal, opt, I am an eternal optimist in that I do believe creation will be fully redeemed. Sure. Um, sure. But, you know, in this present moment, I'm just kind of preparing for, I don't know. Or, was, yeah. <laughs> who, who not, you know, I'm not sure. I, I tweeted about that this morning. I feel like there are kind of two Americas right now. There's one. Mm-hmm. And both of them are anticipating collapse. One, because they think that they deserve it because she's a race, we're a racist country and we're terrible. And the other, because we are so horrible, we deserve collapse. Right. But not because we're racist, but because we've abandoned um, Christian principles. Um, we've, you know, abandoned virtue. Yeah. Essentially. Um, and and everybody's anticipating collapse. Um I don't know where I was going to go, but well, just that I do, I do kind of see that people are trying to preserve something. I yeah. see, I'm sure you see it on Twitter. Like I, I can kind of pick, I could probably name like five people right now. I'm like, okay, I want to connect with them when everything falls. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I want to yeah. be connected to those people. Yeah. 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 No, like that's, 
that was a big reason why I wanted to get, uh, you know, the podcast started was I see it as my own little tiny contribution mm-hmm. to, uh, to preserving or to conserving, you know, I'm, I, I'm a conservative, not in, not in the sense that people typically hear that phrase and think of it, but in a more like traditional Burkean, um, Russell Kirk sort of thing. And the whole idea there is that conservatives start with the idea that there is something worth conserving. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of my driver and, uh, and because there there are things worth conserving right like uh like like sam gamgee says you know there is some good in this world and it's worth fighting for yeah um but it can be very easy to forget that when when you know you look around and it's just there's a war over here and inflation and you can't afford to drive anywhere and and pandemic is still going and oh there's a new variant and just right. all these different things <laughs> right. and it's it's right. like so good gracious like can we get a a freaking break just for yeah. a minute it's 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 pretty it's pretty grim right this minute I'm not gonna lie I'm yeah like, oh, gosh um and, and if I remember whenever um when COVID first started back in you know 2020 I mean I just was so depressed I was like man we are never going to get out of this like mm-hmm. never and I feel like I'm just now coming out of the fog of that depression um that it <laughs> brought upon me I'm um, yeah. just because I think we I think anybody who had any sense of of reality mm-hmm. could see where this is going to take us mm-hmm. like we're never going to be the same after after this because so much you know overreach and the fear that people experienced during that time. I mean, I just felt like we were never going to come out of it. And I still feel that we will always be affected by that time period. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's, that's the sort of thing that like, it's a perfectly reasonable feeling. And I share that feeling, but then you, you put something like that on Twitter and it's like, Oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. It's like, no no but even if i were like how many of those conspiracy theories have since been proven to be 100 percent accurate you know and it's it's just yeah the 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 covid depression um is something i definitely experienced because like it hit so completely out of left field and it wasn't just like you know everyone being doubly careful that they you know cover their mouth when they right, cough right. You're going to stay home for the next six months. Right. Yeah. It was really hard. It was, it, that's what I was saying. Like my life was just going along. I had, you know, I had this routine. Everything was, mm-hmm. was seemingly okay. Yeah. And then suddenly all of that was, was stopped like abruptly. Yeah. And yeah. everything was from home for me. I worked from home for a year and a half mm-hmm. and it was terrible for me. Um, I wanted to go back and say something. Um, and I was actually reflecting on this whenever I was thinking about this podcast we were going to record um going back to people preserving mm-hmm. you know intellectually spiritually yeah i know you're i know you listen to andrew snyder or you're you follow oh gosh him. yeah i do huge huge fan um and you know he talks a lot about he's he's using kierkegaard and he's talking about the ideal self mm-hmm. a lot and i was thinking okay so 
focusing on the ideal self, what does that look like? But also then how does that look, what does the ideal society look like? Like what is mm-hmm. the ideal, um, what, is your, what is the ideal vocation for someone? What is the ideal family? What, like beyond the ideal self, what is the ideal society? What can that look like? Um, and this is something that I've been writing about, just kind of, I've made several notes um, about how I want to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll make it into an article and pitch it somewhere. I don't know. And you're gonna be the first person to hear me talk about this, like publicly. Awesome. Um, well, there, I, ha- I talked to Dean, to Dean about this privately, okay. but um, I don't know how, how familiar you are with uh, Bowenian theory, Bowen family systems, Murray Bowen. <sighs> I remember it from grad school, but we didn't focus too much on it. So okay. tell me so, like I know nothing. Okay, so so Bowen has, um, so he, his concept was that everything is functioning in a system. Mm-hmm. And a system will, like, and so a family is a system. And, a, and that, and they will orbit in a way, if you, mm-hmm. if you will, around the person who is highest in anxiety. Mm-hmm. And to the degree of that anxiety, a family will be fused or they will be differentiated. Mm-hmm. So a, a very fused family is a family that um, is, is so sucked in to the vortex of anxiety and nobody really is autonomous. They're all just orbiting this anxiousness that's in the family. Yeah. Um, and then a differentiated family is one where every person knows, you know, they're autonomous. They have their own thoughts and feelings. They're still part of the, the system. They're all still functioning together as a system, but they are autonomous. They are individuals. They have their own wants and needs and preferences and that kind of thing. And they're not serving the anxiety of the family. Yeah. So he has a differentiation scale that goes zero to a hundred. And I think it's in increments of like 10 or 15 or something like that from zero to eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, zero, I think there are eight levels, I think, something like that. Um. So the lowest differentiated person is one who is completely irrational. They cannot separate thought from feeling. They're not autonomous. They are a slave essentially to anxiety, to the anxiety of the system. Mm -hmm. Um, All of their decision-making is based on emotion. Mm -hmm. All of their responses are based on emotion. I'm completely um, not in touch with reality. Um, Obviously the highest person you can say that Jesus, if you're a Christian, you can say that Jesus was the most <laughs> differentiated person to have ever sure. lived on the face of the earth. Yeah. So the, a, a, a highly differentiated person is going to be someone who is, who can, who can understand, you know, and relate and see what's going on, but also remain autonomous and not get sucked into mm-hmm. the anxiety of the situation. So they're a very differentiated person, not a fused person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I think about what the ideal self is, which is what, Kierkegaard says, yeah. and like Merton, Thomas Merton, who says mm. the true self, yeah. and yeah. Bowen, who is the differentiated self, they're all talking about what is the ideal? What is true? What is the true mm. self? What is, what are we trying to model? What are we trying to attain? And I do think that um, when you, when that goes out into society, when you have a society that's made up of individuals who are low on the differentiation scale, mm-hmm. who are living a very false life, yeah. you know, living out of their false self, their pseudo self, um, you end up with a culture, with a society that is very fused, low differentiation. And I think that's what we're living in now. That's a and really interesting. Th- these are just very loose thoughts that I'm having that I've written some notes about that I'm trying to put it all together. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, how do we how do we move from the ideal self, from the true self, from the differentiated self, 
into a society that reflects the ideal. So if every person in the in society is living out of the true self, out of the ideal self, and they're highly differentiated, then that's going to make for a differentiated society. So how do we get there? Jeremy? I guess people could start by listening to Through the Keyhole, only up now. Um, so that's a very interesting... I should have paid closer attention when we talked about Bowen in grad school, because I, that's a really interesting theory and I need to think about that. Um, that's just where I am. And again, I do yeah. not have a fully formed, like, how do I want to articulate this in a way where I'm providing like a foundation for the thinking and yeah. where I want to take it. Like, I'm not sure where I want to take that thinking, but I'm like, I can think of multiple, you know, psychologists, philosophers, theologians yeah. who are talking about this inner self, this true self, which I say a lot of times is the self we will be in heaven. So the ideal, the ideal self is the self we will be in heaven because yeah. it's a perfected glorified. And can I talk about, I guess I'm just talking freely about Christianity and stuff here. Right. So the, so the ideal self is the self we will become, well, we, we will be in heaven. Mm -hmm. um and we're working toward that of course we're not going to perfect that here on this side of eternity sure um but how can we work toward that um as close as as much as possible and i just think if if society if, if most of individuals in society were thinking that way and we're trying to realize that mm -hmm. the self-actualization um that it would lead to a much more um peaceful harmonious, um, flourishing. Yeah. So two things, <clears throat> two things started swirling around in my mind, um, as you were, as you were explaining that one of them, uh, goes back to Solzhenitsyn. So the, the book I referenced from under the rubble, mm -hmm. he has an essay in it titled, um, titled on repentance and self-limitation. Mm. And his whole idea in that essay was that was that in order for a country to to heal from its self-inflicted wounds mm -hmm. and and in order, I guess, for the world as a whole to kind of move on from whatever wounds that country has inflicted abroad, mm -hmm. the country has to repent. And, and he spends all this time making the point that if an individual can repent, and if repentance really is that first integral step mm -hmm. in making right the thing that an individual has done wrong, shouldn't, shouldn't, couldn't, and will that be the step that a country takes as it begins to turn its back on what it was to become what it could be? Um, and you know, he, he makes the, he makes a case for <clears throat> the importance of self-limitation. And again, he takes the, the idea that it's a good thing for a person to, to impose limits on themselves. You know, it's, mm. it's good to have a healthy appetite, but it's not good to be a glutton. It's, it's mm. okay to have a glass of wine. It's not good to be a drunkard. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So Which are I, biblical concepts. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's one thing I love about Solzhenitsyn. Um, he was the first, he was the first intellectual I ever came across who, who spoke and wrote beautifully about his faith without it being what you typically think of these days when you think of people talking about their faith. Like he, he spoke in such a way and wrote in such a way as to make it very clear that he believed in something. And as it happens, what he believed in, I don't know if it was Russian Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox or just Orthodox, but he was Orthodox. Right, um, right. But it like you, you read Solzhenitsyn and it just, every word he wrote is infused with his mm-hmm. faith, but he doesn't like, he, he, he doesn't make a lot of appeals to scripture necessarily. He's not like, and the reason I believe this because of Matthew three sixteen, right? Nothing like that, but it's mm-hmm. just very, it's, it's drenched in, in a Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, so he makes this point that, you know, much like with repentance, if it's good for a person to to limit themselves, shouldn't that same principle at least be considered for a nation, particularly a nation that is trying to um, to improve, to get better, to right. heal itself? So that was the first thing that came to mind. The second thing that came to mind was a bit more contemporary. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with Jordan Peterson. Any? None? Yes. I don't know how old you are, but I was like one of the OG um, Jordan Peterson followers, like back in like 2010. Oh, wow. I was listening to his lectures when he was still in a classroom in Toronto. Wow. Um, you are I was watching class. video lectures that he did before he ever wrote books before. Well, I don't know if he'd written a book at that point, but he was just a professor giving lectures and they yeah. were going viral. And right. I got in on, it was like, it was around 2010. Yeah. yeah. So I like I'm a I'm a huge Jordan Peterson fan, but I didn't allow myself to like really fall into it until probably mm-hmm. three, maybe four years ago. Like I I remember reading an article about him on First Things uh, when he had when he kind of first rose to prominence with that Canadian bill, uh, mm-hmm. Bill C sixteen, and they were talking Was that about, about like the speech yeah the compelled speech uh issue and you know they were talking about this canadian psychologist who Mm -hmm. had the had the the bravery to say something i thought oh that's that's kind of cool and then of course he became jordan pearson but i bring him up because a household name a household name for better uh it it depends on what household you're in that it's a thing but um me and my house we love jordan pearson um (laughs) but uh But um, so the other thing that came to mind was, you know, one of his very foundational ideas is that before before you go about trying to change the world or or telling the world how it should change, Mm -hmm. you know, clean your room, right? Like make your bed, make sure that your own house is in order before you start ordering the houses of others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, getting back to your point, like it it's just such a big project and it involves such a like like you look at it on paper you're like yeah well I mean we can probably like write some steps down and they'd make all the sense in the world you know the 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 problem is not in finding the solution it's in figuring out how the solution can be implemented Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um 
but yeah, those are my off the cuff thoughts on your incredibly interesting idea on Bowen and, and um, how long has that idea been germinating? Well, um, I have got my, my Sunday school class did a whole, like, I don't know, 10 weeks on Bowen family systems. Wow. And I like, like, what can we extract? What, what can we keep? What can we, you know, dismiss? Yeah. Um, and I just, and I had just taken um, in grad school, um, practice with fam practice with families and groups. Mm -hmm. So we had just done Bowen theory in my grad school. And then my Sunday school class did Bowen family systems, um, touched on that for several weeks. Yeah. And so just notes and stuff that I made during that time, um, I was piecing them in with Merton, mm -hmm. sure. um, the, the false self and the true self. And then I was also thinking about um, now Andrew's stuff with Kierkegaard and mm -hmm. the concept of anxiety and the ideal self. Yeah. So those three things have just kind of merged together in my mind. And just in working with the, the kids that I'm working with now, um, you know, my fifth graders, okay, today we're talking about differentiation. You know, I can't do that. But like, how, <laughs> right. can, I, so, you know, how can I talk to them about, about achieving the ideal? Like what, what does the ideal look like to a fifth grader? Yeah. Um, and so it involves me asking, you know, like, you know, who's someone you admire? Mm -hmm. Who's someone you look up to and what qualities do they have? Yeah. And, you know, if you're going to describe someone, your, your, your ideal person, like who you think is a, is a good role model, you know, what characteristics. And so um, right now, like in small groups, I'm doing character development and things like that. Nice. Um, because a lot of these kids have never had any kind of just really nothing like that. Yeah. So we've started from scratch with character development. And hmm. so I'm building, I'm starting with that. And then we're moving toward as much as you can with an ideal self mm -hmm. kind of concept and hmm. differentiation, but not using that terminology. You know, I see something going on. Um, I feel <laughs> anger or I feel frustration or whatever about that. And how can I reason through what's going on and still remain, you know, autonomous and not being emotionally involved, yeah. um, that kind of thing. So I just think if if every person was was being their ideal self, we'd be in heaven, wouldn't we? We, would. we, we wouldn't. We, you know, I, I, I'm trying to like be realistic in my thinking because I'm like, we do live in a broken world. Uh, we are marred with with sin and the inability to perfect ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, I have kind of what you were saying. We. It's one thing to say, we need to make our bed. We need to clean our room. But then actually doing that. I mean, I've been saying I'm going to organize my office for like three months. And I'm not going to show you what's what's going on over here. <laughs> sure. Um, so I've had that on my list for like three months and I've not actually done it. Um, so mm. it's very easy for us to make plans. But, you know, following through with those plans is, is really hard. I don't so, really know what my point is and how that was. But well, you know. Sometimes uh, there's a there's a quote out there. I don't remember who said it, but some famous writer, whoever, said, uh, "I I don't know what I think until I write it." Mm. And um, I think that there, I think that there's something good there, and I think that that applies as well to to speech. 
And I know that we're, we want to be conscious of your time and oh, you. there's so much other stuff that I want to, I want to talk to you about, particularly this idea of, uh, of the ideal self. And so I guess I, I'll, I'll share my final thought and then we can get yes, your thoughts David. and then move into the end game. But my thought, just as I've been thinking is, I think that, I think that there is a, I think that there is a, a, a pervasive sense in a lot of people that they are not living up to their potential and and because of this world that we're creating of everybody getting a ribbon and and you know I can I can watch anything in the world I want on my phone if if I'm having a bad day I can distract myself easily there's there are just so many options to to use or to utilize to run away from when we might be feeling bad or when we encounter something difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a few more difficult thoughts that I can think of than looking at yourself in the mirror and honestly assessing whether or not you're doing your best, whether or not you're, you're, you're living up to the thing that you think you could be doing. And, um, you know, it's like, Speaking of Kierkegaard, it's kind of an existential idea yeah. of just like, why just am I here? That, right. um, why am I here? What am I doing? Is my life going to amount to anything? And is it too late for it to? And all these different questions. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, well, it's kind of, I think it really boils down to what is your worldview? Mm. You know, we can talk about the ideal self all day long, but like, you and I might have an idea or a concept of what the ideal self is, but you know, somebody off the street may be like, well, my worldview is not the same as yours. So my ideal self is not going to be, I was, I was talking right. to a, a girl who's in my cohort and she's, she's going through a lot. And, and I asked her, you know, like, what is, what is your ideal self? Like, who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. she's like, I don't know. Um, somebody who like creates stuff, like does art. Yeah. But that's not really like, I mean, that's a, that's a quality of the self. Like that's something you can do, but yeah. that's not the core of, of who you are. That's not a principle. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think the ideal self is when you're able to examine your principles. Hmm. Um, so, but then like, what is going to drive your principles? Like hmm. if, and, and for me, like who, who ties it, who ties principles and the ideal self, you know, to a religious standard to something sure. that's that's external that's outside of me um that's probably easier but for someone who is not um they they don't have a, a moral objective or, or an external source of truth if they're looking to themselves for mm -hmm. the answers to their questions i'm always like if the question comes from within the answer can also come from within i'm always like <laughs> if the problem is here the, the solution can also be here i just you know i struggle with that mm -hmm. so um what was your original question? <laughs> I, I, I guess I think my, my original question was just what are your thoughts on my idea that a lot of people don't don't pursue their ideal self yes, right. basically because they see that they're not there and the concept of that journey is overwhelming. It is overwhelming, yes. So so for me, I think that if anyone wants to begin that journey, I'm sorry, is your dog, does he need some love? No, no, I was, oh, I oh. cleared my throat. He's, oh, oh, okay. I thought, that, I thought your dog was, was <laughs> um, so I think, I mean, just my 
off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. If someone wants, if someone's trying to realize, to self-actualize the ideal self, they really need to develop a worldview. Like, mm. what are my principles? Why are these my principles? Where do they come from? Yeah. And how are these principles going to play out? How, how can I align myself with these principles? What decisions do I need to make about my life? Mm -hmm. um, but again, that the ideal supposed worldview. Mm -hmm. How are you viewing yourself? What is? What do you understand? What's your anthropology? What is your understanding of man? Yeah. Your theology? What is your understanding of God? And once you can get those two, I think even Andrew said something like that. I think Maybe so. I can't remember, but that's been, it's been something I've thought about for a long time. You have to have the right view of man, and you have to have the right view of God before you can understand. Before you can self actualize. Before you can even develop a worldview. Yeah. Um, so don't bother even with the ideal self if your world worldview hasn't even been formed, yeah. in my opinion. So start there. I want to have you back on the show another time so that we can dig more into this because I think that this is a really interesting uh, and, and prescient, to use a word we've already touched on, a very interesting and prescient uh, idea. Mm -hmm. And there's obviously a lot to it. Um, but I, I want to... I want to move into the end game and I try to I try to end things on a bit more uh light uh note than we than we spend our time in, in the show because I know that I'm a very dark personality at times and and I don't mind talking about those things but it's not for everybody so I don't mind the darkness it doesn't bother me at all because I think I think people assume that I'm a certain way and I am energetic and I like the sure. but the, but I do really understand the dark and I can be dark and the people who are closest to me know that I can be yeah. so it doesn't bother me well I then then we'll definitely have you back on and we'll just we'll just run into the dark uh I mean we can talk battle. about all the depressing things I don't even care well then that that'll be that'll be round two okay us. great let's do it I wanted to though because you are you are you seem to have a well-known love of bunnies Oh, yes. And I know about this, but I don't understand it. And I don't mean that like what is wrong with you, but I'm just curious why. <laughs> okay. So we talked about this a little before the show started. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been so interested in bunnies. And I really think it's because, so it used to, I'll, I'll start with this. It used to be that if you were afraid you know, you had a fight or flight response. Like if you mm -hmm. were in danger, you had a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. um, and then later years, it said that you had a fight, flight or freeze. Like sometimes you're just frozen. Right. And I would say that rabbits have that freeze response. Um, like they will hunker down. They'll just be a still there. They'll put their ears down and sure, they'll just sure. hopefully um, you're not going to see me. I'm going to get as low to the ground and not move. Yeah. You know? And I, and that's my response to danger is just to freeze. I become really paralyzed when I'm afraid or, um, or in a dangerous situation. I just, I, I become immobile. I can't move. I can't respond. I can't do anything. Yeah. So yeah. in that sense, I relate to the spirit of, you know, of the, of a rabbit. Interesting. Um, but also, um, I just think they're so cute, <laughs> you yeah. know, just aesthetically, they just have, they're just cute. They are. And also we talked about this. I read Watership Down some years ago. 
and and when I was little, um, I loved Beatrix Potter, Tom Kitten, mm-hmm. and Peter Rabbit, and and all that stuff. I I loved Beatrix Potter. Um, so from an early age, I've just always thought they were just so cute and had little lives, like actual lives of their own. Mm-hmm. And then when I read Watership Down, which was a much deeper um, book, that made me think, wow you know, maybe my rabbits really do have this, you know, and, and I do believe that all of creation is, is there to, to glorify the creator. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I can look at my rabbits and the fact that they're living these little rabbit lives out in my backyard and, and, um, and see the work of my creator. And, yeah. and I, and I see them as just like this gift from the Lord. I mean, I know that sounds funny, but when I see them out in my backyard, I think, the Lord gave me this, this, this gift of rabbits yep. in my backyard for me to enjoy and for me to just uh, take pleasure in his creation. And as maybe silly as that sounds, that's really what I think when I see them, I think this is a gift from the Lord. I enjoy. I, I like that view. They, so I was thinking about, I was thinking about rabbits uh, in preparation for our episode today and something struck me as interesting and I'd love to know your thoughts on it rabbits are they're a very hobbit-ish animal Mm. maybe because they kind of burrow in the earth i i actually hadn't even taken that fact into consideration but yes that is certainly uh that is certainly a thing but you know just their just their complete like just leave us alone we just want to we just want to you know hang around in the tall grass and and eat carrots and and we're good to go yep um they're very hobbitish yes and and you know i talk about being a hobbit all the time right i have a hike for a hobbit i'm pretty short in real life so how tall are you i'm 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 I'm, I'm saying yeah i say i'm (laughs) five two but i'm really a little bit under five two um like probably like five one and a half or five one and three quarters or something so i'm super short yeah um so and and i go barefoot all the time so i've got (laughs) two checks for hobbit yeah do you um and i love tolkien i know obviously you love tolkien of course um tolkien and um we could talk we could have a whole episode about about that so yeah they are kind of a hobbitish creature they are are hobbity in a way they just they just want to be left alone and when you see them you just feel a surge of happiness and and joy so my last question for you this episode is you look around the world Mm -hmm. and all of its all of its grungy dark war-torn splendor Mm -hmm. what gives you hope what 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 light do you see well i've said this before and someone disagreed with me and i and i pressed on and and this is and maybe this will change maybe if you ask me this in five years i won't say this (laughs) but um you know in oedipus rex the oracle says the truth is its own protector Mm -hmm. and i really believe that Um, someone said, no, you have to protect the truth. And I said, and I don't believe that I believe the truth, even if you put it in a corner, even if you try to bury it, the truth exists. It's there regardless of whether light is being shown on it or whether it's, you know, part of the narrative. And so even when truth seems to be, um, snuffed out, disregarded, 
um, whenever the truth is, is said to be a lie. I do think truth does prevail. I think it does protect itself in the end. And I guess that's what I, what I kind of cling to. And, you know, I've, I've kind of talked about redemption and obviously people know my, you know, religious leanings. Um, I do believe that there is that creation um, has been redeemed, is being redeemed and will be redeemed. And I don't think that this, that we're living in is the end. I think the truth is its own protector. I think it will out. And um, even if it's not in my, I said this to someone like, even if it's not in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. um, I have faith that, that it all will be made right. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but that's that's that's, what I always. I I think, I think that that's an excellent note to end on for, for this, uh, for this episode. Like I said, I definitely want to have you on again to talk about all the things that we didn't get to, as well as some of the things that we've already touched on, but um, we'll talk about the dark things. We'll talk about the dark things, but thank you for coming on my show. Thank you, Jeremy. This was a pleasure. This was great. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. The pleasure was all mine. I look forward to having you back on. Yeah, we'll do it again. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll, uh, I'll see you on Twitter. Okay. Adios. Thank you, Jeremy. Yep.